One of the best parts about working in a museum is getting to do research. And a few months ago, I came across a Muskegon Chronicle headline that was from May 26, 1909, and it read, Muskegon women pray as earthquake that hits the central west jars city. Local residents believe end of world had come. Buildings trembled. Many noticed phenomenon which lasted for nearly a minute. Some are badly frightened. And uh, this was intriguing, and it actually has to do with our earthquake table in STEM Center. So listen on as we go well beyond Muskegon for our history lesson today. Welcome to another episode of Muskegon History and Beyond. I'm Wendy Van Workham, and I am one of the program assistants here at the museum. And as per usual with most of my podcasts, this one is the result of when I squirreled down some research path. While I was sitting in our STEM center, I was looking at our earthquake table and wondering if any really large earthquakes ever occurred in the Midwest. I happen to know that there is a fault line down the Mississippi Valley, but I wasn't sure how active it was or if earthquakes could be felt here in Muskegon. Now, it's not always easy to tell when or how big historic earthquakes happen because, well, people didn't always write that information down. And over the years, Native American oral histories have been lost due to the suppression of some of their culture. But intrepid as always, I went on the search and wouldn't you believe it, I actually found quite a few articles on seismic activity in the past. Once I knew that they had happened, it was on to checking when seismographs started. And then I got the idea to see if a geologist would talk to me about earthquakes. And to spice up my questions, I asked the local second and fourth graders from Muskegon Christian School what questions they would ask as well. So in the second part of this podcast, you're going to get a chance to hear some excerpts from my interview with Greg Waite from Michigan Tech. He is a professor of geological and mining engineering and sciences with a BA in mathematics and a master's and PhD in geophysics. Remember that for later. Full disclosure, you are not going to hear the full interview as we had a really great about 45 minute conversations and I had to trim it down a bit. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. And if you have any questions that didn't get answered about earthquakes and earthquakes in the Midwest, please feel free to leave your questions in the comments and we'll see if we can find the answer. Enjoy. And what exactly do you do at the university? What is your role? And so my role is really to teach students at the undergraduate and graduate level and do research. And most of my research is on um, earthquakes that happen underneath volcanoes. Oh, really? Wow. So do you do a lot of field work? Yep, a fair amount. So yeah, a lot of the data we collect is based on temporary seismometer data that we, so stations that we put out for maybe sometimes as short as a week, sometimes for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and we'll collect data and, cool. uh, and then analyze it. So where are the volcanoes that you kind of are watching? We work a lot in Central America, especially in Guatemala. Okay. There's three volcanoes in Guatemala that have been active for a long time anyway. And so um, it's always an interesting place to study and learn from. And then uh, we've also worked in um, in Hawaii, and then in a lot of the other earthquakes in the western United States, um, Mount St. Helens, Long Valley Caldera, Yellowstone, places where um, there aren't always lots of eruptions, but usually there are small earthquakes happening um, in the background. And we study those to try to figure out what's going on beneath the surface. So how did you get into geology and studying geology? Have you always wanted to do that? The study of seismology is an interesting combination of physics and geology. And so as a kid, I guess I always liked being outdoors. I grew up in the Upper Peninsula in Marquette, and we spent a lot of time outdoors. 
And um, so I got to see a lot of geology. And then um, when I went to college, I discovered that there's a there's something that's called geophysics. It's kind of this combination of math and physics and geology. And so that's when I really got into geophysics and seismology. That's very cool. So how does the math element play with kind of the study of earthquakes? Yeah, math is really the tool that allows us to figure out how waves move through the rock. So earthquakes, of course, um, occur at a certain place in in space and time. But then what we study is those waves that travel outward from the earthquake. And so there's a lot that we can learn from um, how the waves move through the rock, how fast they go, the paths that they take, how they bounce around in the rock. And and mathematics really gives you the, the tools to understand all those intricate details of the waves. One of the things that I noticed when I was reading through the articles that I had found is you could kind of tell just from the reports where kind of the epicenter was, because they would, they would report in, you know, in Chicago, this was happening and this was happening. And then the further out you would get kind of the less noticeable those things were in those newspaper reports. Yeah. Those, those reports are great because, you know, we don't have a lot of recordings from seismometers from a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. but we have to rely on to understand what the earthquakes were or whether there were earthquakes back then, we really have to rely on those kinds of reports from people. And so um, there's a lot of work that's been done to try to build a way to translate between those reports that people people make about how much damage or how strong the shaking was, and then where the earthquake was and how big the earthquake was at it, the earthquake location. Yeah, that was one of the questions that our kids kind of had when I sent out the question, can you see the evidence of those earthquakes in the geologic record, the ones that we don't have the seismographic information from? Yeah, there are, um, there are a couple of ways. So well, one way is with sand blows and somebody, um, you had mentioned that, uh, mm-hmm. um, one of the questions that somebody had. So sand blows are um, evident after strong shaking has occurred from a pretty big earthquake. So you have to have a pretty large earthquake that shakes the ground really hard. And essentially what happens is um, you imagine you know, you've got soil before you get down to the rock and that soil can be saturated with water. If you shake that up, the structure and the soil kind of collapses. Mm-hmm. And so it squeezes the water out and then you get these sort of a sand blow is essentially kind of like a little eruption of sand and water that comes out uh, on the surface. And so people have been able to look at sand blows that are recorded uh, along with in modern times when we have uh, earthquake uh, recordings from seismometers. And we can say, okay, well, the sand blow of that size gives us an indication that the shaking was, you know, about this strong. Then you can go back in the geologic mm-hmm. record and find these sand blows and the extent of them and say, oh, the earthquake must have been about a magnitude seven or something based on how strong the shaking was over a big area. There's actually um, kind of a subfield of seismology called paleo seismology that does okay. this looking at old earthquakes. Um, the other main tool is to actually dig trenches across faults. Okay. If you dig a dig a trench across fault a fault that's had a slip on on it a bunch of times, so it's, maybe it's had five earthquakes on it that you can see in the in the trench data. What you can do then is find soils mm-hmm. that are um, that look like they were deposited right after the earthquake, and then look for organic matter in the soil and date that using a uh, like a radiocarbon method. Carbon. Oh, 14. very cool. That's really important because then you know then you can look back in time and and see how active a particular fault is and and maybe get an idea of how dangerous it might be for us now. Yeah, because that was one of the things that I found was really interesting. We just don't hear about earthquakes and things happening in the Midwest very much. 
Um, but then you come up with some of these reports where it sounds like they were larger earthquakes or like the New Madrid earthquake, which sounded like it was a very large earthquake. Um, and just how active that fault line is kind of down the Mississippi Valley. Or So that was the site of three, at least three large earthquakes, probably magnitude seven, maybe bigger mm-hmm. um, in the winter of 1811, 1812. That seems kind of surprising. So some of the paleo seismic uh, studies that have been done in that area suggest there were other earthquakes in the past there, maybe around 1400 and uh, around 900. So maybe kind of around every 500 uh, years or so. But, you know, uh, we can't go back much farther than that. Right. But it's interesting. You don't expect big earthquakes in the, in the central United States. We don't see them very often. That big fault system is part of an old geologic rift, more than a billion years old. A rift is where the, the plate started to come apart. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of like the Keweenaw Rift and um, the other part, our part of that rift goes through um, the lower peninsula of Michigan. Um, so the plates started to come apart and then it stopped. So for whatever reason, um, it stopped. There was another tectonic plate uh, arrangement that uh, prevented that from continuing. But anyway, what it did is create this big zone of weakness. And um, so it's probably being driven by kind of what the stresses that are caused by what's happening at the edges of the tectonic plate those are just getting translated onto that weak spot in the, it's kind of like the weak link, you know? Uh-huh. And so that's kind of where um, sometimes earthquakes can happen in the Midwest. So it's not like we are at the edge of a tectonic plate necessarily. It's just a weak spot in the plate. Is that what yep. I'm hearing correctly? Yeah, okay. exactly right. Yeah. We're a smack dab in the middle of this big, strong plate, but it's, it's being stressed from the sides. And so there are lots of old faults and every once in a while, one of those faults has an earthquake on it just because of this, the stresses from them. Mm-hmm. Is that the same kind of activity that you're seeing when you're monitoring out in Yellowstone under that type of stuff? Or is that just a different situation because of the thermal activity and everything that's going on there? Yeah, Yellowstone is a little bit different because there you have um, what's called a hot spot. And so there's actually this deep source of heat underneath Yellowstone. That's the reason that there's all the geothermal features and the reason that volcanic eruptions there in the past mm-hmm. and probably will be someday in the future. Um, so most of the earthquakes there are kind of related to that, uh, that thermal anomaly, that big, okay. uh, all that heat that's coming up from deep down in the earth. So kind of thinking about tectonic plates, one of the fourth grade questions was what is the smallest or where is the smallest tectonic plate? Well, that's kind of a tough question. And the reason is because, um, exactly how a plate is defined sort of uh-huh. varies depending on what you're, how you're measuring it. The plates, you know, like I just, like we were just talking about the plates, they're, they're perfectly stiff. They can have breaks in the middle of them. Right. And um, so even like the North America plate is um, on the West side, of course, it's bounded by the Pacific plate, right. Mm-hmm. On the East side, it's bounded by um, well, in the middle of the Atlantic ocean. Okay. But on the West side, it really starts to spread out once you get to the Rocky Mountains. Even though it's not a new plate, the plate itself is is not behaving the same way in the Western United States as it behaves in the East. There are some small plates like in the in the Caribbean. Um, there are some small plates uh, actually along the West Coast, like the Nazca plate. It's subducting underneath the um, Cascade volcanoes. Most of it has subducted. There used to be more of it. and um, But so that's an example of a relatively small uh, small plate. The Cocos Plate, uh, another example in uh, kind of a 
subduction uh, zone plate down there in, in Central America. So those are pretty small mm-hmm. uh, plates that I can think of. Cool. So subduction is when the one plate is going underneath the other plate. Yeah, exactly. And what is it? What is the term for when they're crashing together and they're rising up and forming like those mountain ranges? It's another kind of collisional tectonic zone, mm-hmm. um, like in the Himalayas. Yeah. So I guess we just call that a continent continent collision. Yeah. And there, since both the plates are are um, continental plates, uh, neither one wants to dive underneath the other one, so they just collide and and uh, get thicker and thicker and thicker as they together. So you're more likely to have subduction along like ocean plates. Yep, exactly right. So okay. the ocean plates are um, denser, so they're gonna they're gonna sink relative to the, the continental plate, which is more buoyant. It's mm-hmm. a little bit less dense, and so it's kind of lighter, and it rises. It sits a little bit higher on the um, on the on the mantle. So the fourth graders also thought that the earthquakes were more likely to occur along the edges of the tectonic plates. Is that kind That's of definitely true? Yep. Okay. Those guys and are then. Right on. The second graders wanted to know if earthquakes could cause mudslides, visible cracks in the earth, avalanches, and damage to tall buildings. Earthquakes can do all those things. So usually mudslides or different kinds of landslides occur. Um, they can occur because of that strong shaking. Mm-hmm. You know, so the earthquake happens and then it shakes the ground and um, ground susceptible. So if there's a strong susceptibility to landslides, sometimes uh, earthquakes can trigger them. Actually, it happens quite often. Visible cracks can occur, but but earthquakes don't usually cause the earth to open up in a crack. Like so, so you don't have a fault that just opens up like that. Typically, right. that's I mean that would be very uh, unusual and it would be very shallow. It wouldn't be a big a big mm-hmm. feature. But uh, if it's in association with like a landslide, then you can definitely get uh, cracks that open up. You know, on mm-hmm. that on that landslide. Structural engineers do a really good job of trying to understand how to build buildings that are designed to sway when an earthquake happens so mm-hmm. that um, they move instead of breaking. But um, of course, not all buildings are built to, uh, sometimes we just don't know how strong the shake is going to be in an area and an earthquake, a large earthquake happens. And it's kind of unexpected. Uh, so that can cause damage to buildings that aren't built properly. Yeah. One of the interesting articles that I found was about a, um, in Waverly, Illinois, there was a subterranean lake and after there was an earthquake, they reported that this half acre lake disappeared. Hmm. Um, and then they had a strong sulfur smell in the area and a whole bunch of people went to it. It's, it's great because it says the cave is being visited by throngs of people, which you would think after an earthquake and they noticed these changes, maybe that wasn't a smart cave. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you wouldn't rush down underground there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. So yeah, an earthquake can change the stress distribution in the earth and mm-hmm. water moves around um, in the in the soil and in the rock um, mm-hmm. through pore spaces. And uh, if you change the stress, that can change the way water moves through the through the earth. And so even without a lot of big cracks, sometimes you get, you know, water moving right. around. We were kind of talking about those tall buildings at the university. Do you guys have your engineering students do any of them have to do projects dealing with earthquakes and large buildings or earthquakes and mines or anything like that anymore? Or have they in the past had to deal with thinking of planning for those types of events? Yeah. So in, uh, in the Department of Civil Engineering, uh, Civil and Environmental Engineering in our, here, there's um, some specialists in that area. So um, they're trying to design buildings that structures that um, will withstand strong shaking. Um, 
And, you know, one thing that people are thinking about too is after an earthquake occurs, sometimes there are aftershocks. So your building might survive the first earthquake, but you have to make sure that it's going to maintain its integrity so that it'll survive the aftershocks as well. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Sometimes a building will still be standing after an earthquake, but um, it won't be safe anymore. So then you still have to knock it down. Right. As long as nobody gets injured, you know, that's a success, but still it can be very costly to knock it down and rebuild. Yeah, that was one of the questions that the second graders had that I thought was a great question uh, as to how long it can take an area to kind of be cleaned up after an earthquake. And I imagine it depends on the magnitude of those earthquakes. Yeah, it depends on depends on how big the earthquake is, how much damage there is, and also just the capacity of the government to and the communities to um, to clean that up. I think Japan is kind of the example of, of a country that has really good earthquake resistant buildings and they're very resilient. So they can have a big earthquake like the one that just happened, um, that magnitude 7.3 earthquake uh, off the coast of Japan was really strong and it shook the buildings really hard, but um, most of the um, structures were designed for to withstand that. So they don't really have a lot of cleanup. And then you have a place like um, well, like the Haiti earthquake in 2010, mm-hmm. which did tons of damage and lots of buildings weren't designed to withstand strong shaking. So they collapsed and it just takes years really to uh, recover from an event like that. Mm-hmm. Thinking about measuring earthquakes, how do we measure kind of the intensity? Like what kind of a scale do we use to measure the intensity and how does that kind of work? That's a great question because there are kind of two main ways that you measure earthquake size and it gets kind of confusing. So, so the first way that we always hear about is the magnitude, right? And so that's like, that's based on sort of this Richter magnitude, which was designed a long time ago. We don't exactly use the Richter magnitude anymore, but something very similar. That's how big the earthquake was um, at the place where the earthquake happened, right? So think of a fault. Maybe the fault was 10 miles long. Maybe it was a couple hundred miles long. However long the fault was and how much uh, it slipped on either side of the fault, that tells you how big the magnitude of the earthquake was. What really matters to people is the intensity, right? How strong it felt where you were. Mm -hmm. So of course, if you're right next to a big earthquake, a large magnitude earthquake, the intensity is going to be really strong. If you're far away from that, the intensity won't be very big. And so you won't have any damage. So the first way that we measure it is, is using seismometers usually. And we measure how, how big the waves are on seismometers around the fault. And based on how far away those seismometers are from the earthquake, we can come up with this, this estimate of the magnet. But the intensity can be based on other things too, like how people perceived the shaking. Did, um, you know, did all your books get knocked off the shelf or Mm -hmm. did your house get collapsed or did your part of your chimney fall down or things like that? So those intensity estimates, those intensity values are used as input to the, what we call the MMI or the modified Mercalli intensity scale. And that's really the important one for, um, you know, for understanding the effect of earthquakes on humans. Yeah, a lot of the news reports were really interesting um, because a lot of the reports came from like 1906. They were reporting specific people's effect. So like they would report about the police officer who was on duty and what he felt. And another one was a gentleman who was involved in the township government and what he felt at his house. It very, very specific 
Uh-huh. That's interesting. very specific stuff. And then they reported on uh, the bookkeepers at one of the local lumber mills felt one of the earthquakes and they felt it because their book stands where they were doing their accounting numbers were shaking and then their chairs were shaking while they were doing their stuff as well. Okay. Um, so that's kind of an interesting way. And then the other evidence of measurement that I found was a 1891 earthquake in Chicago and it mentions a seismoscope at Rose Polytechnical Institute uh, or Polytechnic Institute. And it said it was one of the two in the country. Okay. No, if that's accurate or not, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. So I've seen some, um, some pictures of, I've never seen one in person of these old seismoscopes, but, you know, rather than having um, like a trace of the shaking like mm-hmm. you usually see with a seismometer. Right. Some of these seismoscopes were designed to just measure um, like like they would be um, situated with maybe some kind of a, a series of balls or something. Uh-huh. And so if the shaking was strong enough, a ball would pop out and, and land in a cup. And then you could say, oh, there's the earthquake. And you get some idea of the direction that the waves are traveling sure. and things like that. So it's a pretty uh-huh. neat. It was a fun thing to to find when I was reading it closest. So do we have any ideas of what the largest or longest earthquakes have been? Okay. So the, the largest one we can say is that, that we know about was in Chile in 1960, mm-hmm. it was magnitude 9.5. And, you know, of course, Chile is that very long country that runs um, along the co- West coast of South America. And it's that whole coast is basically a subduction zone. So you can have a big earthquake that has slipped all along that subduction zone most of it slipped during that uh, 1960 earthquake. So magnitude 9.5 is wow. the biggest one that we know about. And you can't get really much bigger than that. There aren't any faults that are bigger than that. Than that. Okay. The smallest ones. So people have recorded earthquakes that are minus two, you know, kind of down to that level. Okay. And that sounds kind of weird, but um, that's the reason the, because the scale is a logarithmic scale. So a minus number just means it's a, it's a, just a very small number, right? For for kids, it's maybe think of it as like a decimal number. So when right. you take a logarithm of a decimal number, then you get a negative number. So that just means that the amplitudes were really tiny, but you have to be really close because those represent tiny, tiny faults that are like as big as your desk. And so uh-huh. you, they don't make big, strong waves. And so if you don't have a seismometer right next to them, you'll never see them. Does the geology of an area make a difference in how the earthquakes travel and how they're felt? Yeah, that's another really good question. The um, So the, part of the reason that there are so many felt reports in the newspapers and things, I think are um, because even though those earthquakes weren't in Muskegon um, or even in like central or probably, the, probably most of them weren't even in Michigan, they're probably down in Illinois or Indiana or Ohio. I know one of them for sure was in, was in Illinois, but um, in the Western United States, so editing Wendy Hopping in here, um, Greg meant Eastern United States. The earth is sort of stronger and it can, the waves can travel through it much fat, much better, much more efficiently. So they don't die out. The, the waves don't die out as fast as they do in the Western United States. So when you have a big earthquake in the Western United States, the waves um, die out pretty fast. And so you don't feel them as far away. They don't do damage far away, but it's different in the, in the Eastern United States. So a big earthquake in the eastern United States because felt over a huge area compared to the to the western mm-hmm. United States. And it's really because the continental crust, Earth's crust in the western United States is is warmer, it's thinner, 
and it's probably more broken up by faults. And then the Eastern United States, it's thicker and colder and older and uh, just kind of transmit the waves much more efficiently. Does the fact that we've got so much sand have any effect on, on that at all? Yeah, in a way, um, because there's what happens very can happen like right underneath your site. Let's say you're standing someplace and there's an earthquake. If you're standing someplace where there's um, like you're standing right on a rock, right on bedrock, it's, the shaking won't be as strong as if you're standing like in an old lake bed or someplace where there's lots of sand going down for maybe, you know, hundreds of feet mm-hmm. or a thousand feet before you get to rock. So yeah. that's kind of like it, it amplifies the wave. When you get into that sand, it sort of amplifies the wave. And it can yeah. make this shaking last longer too, because the waves can bounce around in basins and stuff. That's interesting. Cause I had always, whenever we studied earthquakes in school, which is like elementary school, you always envision the wave going out and just, it goes out from that central point. And that's how the illustrations get drawn and everything. So it's very mm-hmm. interesting to hear that they can bounce around in there. Yeah. That's a really important effect for, for the hazards. So, and unfortunately a lot of our big cities around the world are built on these basins because they're flat you know, and um, easy building. And so that was a good place for people to settle. Um, but but places like Mexico City, for example, are on uh, these deep sedimentary basins. And so when there's an earthquake far away, the waves come into that basin and then they get amplified and they bounce around and they can make the shaking more severe. Is that kind of what happened with the really big San Francisco earthquake in 1906? Is that because they were, they had filled so much that would have amplified those waves? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, so they, like you said, they filled in a lot of, they, to make more land, they dumped um, soil into the bay and uh, expanded out the area of the, of the city, which is great for building on, you know, for having more land, but um, that's pretty weak. And also it's saturated by, with water. So you get two things, you get that amplification effect. You also get um, liquefaction, which is when, when the soils sort of break down and they lose their structural integrity. After the 1989 earthquake in um, just south of San Francisco, um, a bunch of the buildings in the in those areas where the, on the filled-in land actually sunk down into the soil uh, partway, and so they're like you can walk through there now, and in some of these neighborhoods, and the doors are below the sidewalk. Uh, oh wow! It's pretty dramatic. Yeah. Uh huh. That's cool. I remember that happening, but I don't remember ever hearing about that effect. So that's pretty cool. So some of the other questions, a lot of the second grade questions were about how we stay safe and how people stay safe during earthquakes and those types of questions. So what do people usually do to stay safe in the event of an earthquake? Okay, the, um, the most important thing is to quickly get underneath uh, a desk or a table or something um, like that that can protect you from objects that might fall down. So... Um, most of the time, you don't have to worry about the building collapsing. Mm-hmm. What, what really injures people is when pictures fall off the wall or a TV falls down and, and lands on somebody or, or something like that, or a lamp falls. And so those are the things that um, you should worry about the most. We recommend that this drop cover and hold on. So you, you drop down under, the, under a chair or a desk or whatever you can get under safely, um, and then just wait for the shaking to stop. And then you can get up and maybe go outside then. People sometimes have a tendency to want to run outside And um, if you're in a city with tall buildings, then stuff can fall off of those buildings and land in the street and land on the sidewalk. It can be really dangerous to do. So the best bet is to is to be just stay kind of where you are, but try to get underneath something that can protect you from falling objects. 
Yeah, it was interesting. A lot of the the one specific report in Muskegon about an earthquake did mention that everybody ran outside. <laughs> was they were very frightened. I think it's a natural instinct, you know. How easy is it to predict these earthquakes? So the short answer is we cannot predict earthquakes. So editing Wendy here. The second graders had a really great question about if animals were able to predict earthquakes or if they act strangely. And long story short is yes, they act strangely, but we're not really sure why that happens. And so I had to take that part out in the interest of time. So here's kind of the tail end of that conversation. But the other thing that people have reported sometimes is that they're right before the strong shaking starts that maybe their dog starts barking or something like that. Right. And that's probably because um, the first waves to arrive after an earthquake are the P waves. Those are pretty weak. They're the faster waves, but they're, they're pretty weak and they don't cause a lot of damage. The next waves to arrive are the S waves and then the surface waves. And those, those waves that arrive later are the ones that cause the damage They're a larger amplitude. And those are the ones that people feel as well. So animals might feel that P wave. Mm-hmm. And start acting strangely and feeling agitated. Um, and then so people think, oh, the, the animals got some, you know, premonescence of the right. earthquake. And then and then the strong shaking happens and and, the, and humans feel that, too. Yeah. And so when you're talking about the P waves and the S waves, the P waves are kind of waves that kind of bump against each other. Right. Yeah. And then the S waves, the surface waves are the big up and down ones. Yeah. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, that's right. So up okay. and down and, and side to side as well for the S waves and surface waves. Okay. A P wave is just like a sound wave. Same thing. It's just that it's going through the rock instead of the air. Very, very cool. So did you guys, were you able to pick up that earthquake in Haiti when it happened? Uh, I'm trying to remember if it was, if our station was working then I'm sure we did. Uh, right. It was definitely big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, like just this this 7.3 in, in Japan the other day, we picked up the big Sumatra earthquake back in 2004. That was a really big one that, um, that we could clearly see on all the stations. And so when they make news and they're in the headlines, it's kind of interesting too, because then you can, you can go look at the data right away. So this was really, really cool. Thank you for taking your time and sharing your knowledge with us. I know that the kids especially are going to enjoy it. Um, they, they had some great questions and it also answers some of the questions that came up from the news articles. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I, and thanks for sending all those articles too. Um, it's fun to read those old accounts of earthquakes. I think a lot of people don't think about all this activity that's going on beneath our feet. Thank you again for joining us with another episode of Muskegon History and Beyond. Remember, if you had questions about earthquake that weren't answered in the podcast, please leave them in the comments. Have a great day.